Hello, everyone, and welcome to Rare Genomics Institute session of our podcast series, Ask the Expert. We've teamed with the Transverse Myelitis Association to bring you this podcast, which will focus on rare neuroimmunological diseases. My name is Lindsay Kalua, and I am the Education Coordinator for Rare Genomics. Hosting today will be Dr. Jimmy Lin, RGI's President. First, I'd like to introduce you to the Transverse Myelitis Association. Here to tell us more is Chitra Krishnan, the Executive Director of the TMA. Thank you, Lindsay. Hello, everyone. My name is Chitra Krishnan. Welcome to Ask the Expert podcast sponsored by Rare Genomics Institute and the TMA. We're a nonprofit international foundation dedicated to the support of children, adolescents, and adults with a spectrum of rare neuroimmune diseases. Our mission is to provide support and advocate for our more than 9,000 members, promote awareness and empower patients, families, clinicians, and scientists through education programs, and to advance the scientific understanding and treatment for these rare diseases. Our goal is to improve the quality of life of individuals with these diseases. For more information, please visit our website at www.myelitis.org. Thank you. Thank you, Chitra, for introducing us to TMA. Dr. Lin, can you tell the listeners about the Rare Genomics Institute? Sure. The Rare Genomics Institute, um, RGI, we are a nonprofit organization, which its mission to help patients with rare diseases by giving them access to top researchers and access to funding to research for the disease that affects them. Right now, our main focus has been using genome and exome sequencing, but we're now expanding um, to be able to hopefully to do any experiment for any rare disease. We're already helping patients discover new genes, and we're excited to partner with our top experts, 18 in the U.S. and expanding globally in the world, to help patients all over the world attack rare diseases, especially diseases that are not being studied. Thank you, Dr. Lin. A quick disclaimer before we start. We're sharing a lot of state-of-the-art and new information. This is just for educational purposes and not medical advice. This is not to replace talking to your doctor. So if you have any specific questions, please make sure you do talk to your doctor. We hope this will be a helpful resource just for educational purposes. Without further ado, we'll go ahead and begin tonight's Ask the Experts podcast. Thank you, Lindsay. So today we have a great guest helping us as we talk, tackle the, the question of transverse myelitis and other rare neuroimmunologic diseases, um, such as neuromyelitis optica, acute disseminated encephalomyelitis, and optic neuritis. So we're, we're glad to have Dr. Greenberg with us today. Dr. Greenberg is an assistant professor in the Department of Neurology at University of Texas Southwestern Medical Center. He is the director of the Transverse Myelitis and the Neurotica Program, as well as the director of the Pediatric Demyelinating Disease Program, as well as the deputy director of the Multiple Sclerosis Program. Dr. Greenberg trained initially at Baylor College of Medicine, um, then did his internship at Russ Presbyterian in St. Luke's in Chicago, and then did his residency in neurology at Johns Hopkins Hospital in Baltimore, and eventually joining the faculty in the neuroimmunology division at, at Johns Hopkins, and then was the co-director of the Transverse Myelitis Center and the director of the Encephalitis Center. In 2009, he was recruited to UT Southwestern, where he's now the deputy director of multiple sclerosis program, the director of the transverse myelitis and neuromyelitis optical program. 
He also directs the pediatric myelinating diseases at Children's Hospital in Dallas. Um, we have an expert with us, great training, um, and his, his emphasis, as sort of mentioned before, are in multiple sclerosis, transverse myelitis, neuromyelitis optica, and infections of the nervous system. He's actively involved with finding new ways to diagnose and prognosticate for patients with these disorders. Thank you much for joining us, Dr. Greenberg. It's a pleasure to be here with you. So I think we'll just start from the very, very beginning, although we know that many people listening in who works with the TMA knows a lot about this, but can you tell us about what, what is transverse myelitis? Yeah, it's a good question, Jimmy, and transverse myelitis uh, actually as a name and a diagnosis has caused quite a bit of confusion for patients, families, and clinicians. By definition, transverse myelitis simply means inflammation of the spinal cord. This condition can occur in two settings. It can occur as part of a larger systemic condition, like multiple sclerosis, where patients will often get inflammation of the spinal cord, or it can occur as a disease in and of itself where we don't necessarily find the underlying cause, in which case we refer to the patient as having idiopathic transverse myelitis, meaning inflammation of the spinal cord without a clear explanation as to why. I know the TMA doesn't just work on trans transverse myelitis, also um, ADEM, NMO, and ON. Like, why is it not just transverse myelitis? Why does it include these other sort of neuroimmunologic diseases? So the, the philosophy within the Transverse Myelitis Association has, has been a great one over the last uh, 15 years. On the one hand, as a patient advocacy organization, it's created an umbrella, a home for multiple patients and families who suffer from rare neuroimmunologic disorders. So what these conditions all have in common is the fact that the immune system has become confused and caused damage to the optic nerve, brain, spinal cord, or combinations of those three. What started out, I think, is really an advocacy and uh, support network for families with these rare conditions was actually ahead of its time because what we've discovered is when you lump rare diseases that, while distinct, have some overlap into one umbrella, we learn from each other. And so while patients with idiopathic transverse myelitis have a different underlying biology than patients with neuromyelitis optica, by comparing and contrasting those patient populations with rare diseases, we learn more about each. And so the notion of breaking down silos between diseases has been something the Transverse Myelitis Association has been at the forefront of. Often patients and families will appropriately want advocacy for their rare disease, but it's always important to remember that collaborations often yield the biggest results for any rare disease. That's great. So let's focus on transverse myelitis. For, for someone, you know, usually with transverse myelitis, how, how do they usually find out about it? Like what are the symptoms? How do they, what are the things that happen to them when they initially get the disease? This is the cause of a lot of issues for our patients because it's a rare disease, it's potentially devastating, and can have a multitude of presentations, which means de facto that a lot of healthcare providers are unaware of the multiple ways this condition can present, often leading to delays in diagnosis. The most common presentations for our patients when their spinal cord becomes inflamed involve loss of sensation in arms or legs, Sometimes there's pain in arms, legs, or the back, 
Often patients will have weakness of one or more limbs, usually affecting the legs more than arms and leading to problems with walking or balance. And often patients will have changes in their ability to control their bowel or bladder function. We have multiple patients who present to emergency rooms with an inability to empty their bladder. And unfortunately, a lot of them get sent home with a misdiagnosis of a urinary tract infection only to develop weakness later. So the Transverse Myelitis Association and physicians who are involved in caring for these patients spend a lot of time on the education side for healthcare providers trying to ensure that they recognize the multitude of ways this condition can present. It affects both children and adults. It, it does not have uh, an age that it spares. Our youngest patients are just a few months old, and our oldest patients are more than 80 years old. And this causes a lot of difficulty uh, trying to keep both families, patients, and healthcare providers aware of the multiple ways it can present. Wow, it sounds like a sort of a very complex disease. You mentioned a little bit earlier that, you know, there's things with known causes and as well as sort of an idiopathic without a cause. Like, what are some of these causes for transverse myelitis? The most common cause worldwide is probably multiple sclerosis. And in, in this condition, which is a, a common condition affecting about one in a thousand individuals in the United States, the immune system gets confused, for lack of a better term, and can cause damage to the brain, optic nerve, and or spinal cord. When the spinal cord is affected, uh, the patient has technically suffered from transverse myelitis, but the underlying cause is the systemic condition, multiple sclerosis. Another cause, much rarer than multiple sclerosis, is a condition called neuromyelitis optica, or NMO. It's also known as Devick's disease. This condition uh, used to be thought of as a cousin of multiple sclerosis, but over the last 10 years, it has become clear that it's a distinct autoimmune disease with a very specific underlying biology, and understanding how these patients' transverse myelitis and clinical history differ from either idiopathic patients or multiple sclerosis patients has led to rapid advances in our not only understanding of the disease, but treatment options for these patients. And it's a, a great example of how when rare diseases link up together or even with more common diseases, our understanding changes dramatically. And so those two, multiple sclerosis and neuromyelitis optica, are two of multiple examples of systemic conditions that can cause transverse myelitis. Got it. And since it, since it sometimes sort of present and are linked with other diseases, um, do people then treat first those diseases, or are there sort of special treatments for transverse myelitis itself? You know, that's, a, that's an excellent question. And in general, uh, the treatment for transverse myelitis is similar regardless of the cause, with a few exceptions. Uh, the standard of care for patients who have transverse myelitis is to receive a high dose of steroids in order to bring down inflammation. And whether the cause is neuromyelitis optica, multiple sclerosis, a condition called sarcoid, a condition called lupus, or idiopathic transverse myelitis, steroids has been at the forefront of treatment for decades. There are some conditions that have additional uh, responses to other therapies. For example, both in idiopathic transverse myelitis and neuromyelitis optica patients, we see a great benefit from using a therapy called plasmapheresis or plasma exchange. You can think of it as a cousin of dialysis where a patient's blood is taken into a machine and essentially cleaned of some of the proteins that lead to inflammation 
and then that patient's own blood is given back to them uh, over about a 90-minute uh, process. And patients will often be treated with five to seven of these sessions as a way to rapidly bring down the amount of inflammation in the spinal cord. As we've learned through transverse myelitis and other conditions like strokes and heart attacks where the body is suffering damage, we think, although it's yet to be proven, that the sooner we get rid of the cause of the damage, the better people do. So within transverse myelitis, whether it be with steroids or plasma exchange, there's been a big push to uh, increase the speed at which a diagnosis is made accurately and to increase the speed at which patients get therapy, even if the underlying cause is not completely clear. Uh, sometimes we have to treat while still trying to make the diagnosis. So it seems like steroids and also sort of plasmapheresis are, are ways that sort of um, as therapeutic methods. Um, we have questions for, from other, from patients asking, for example, there's Antonio from Brazil asking about pulse therapy and Laura from California asking about vitamins. What are your thoughts on, on pulse therapy and, and vitamins? So therapy for uh, transverse myelitis, at least the idea of uh, pulse therapy, is really around uh, acute attacks. Um, in the setting of supplements or vitamins, there's a variety of studies looking at different uh, heavy uh, metals, vitamins, minerals, and the one that gets probably the most attention and data is around vitamin D supplementation, D as in David, and specifically vitamin D3 levels. There have been multiple studies showing that vitamin D deficiency is a risk factor for autoimmune diseases, and there is at least one study out um, which has shown that vitamin D deficiency is a risk factor for recurrent transverse myelitis. And so for individuals who've had transverse myelitis, we are big advocates for working with your physician to see if your vitamin D level is adequate. And in general, we just look for general health uh, with other vitamins like B12. Um, anyone with a B12 deficiency, their symptoms can be worse, but we haven't proven that B12 supplementation specifically reverses the course of the disease or makes the symptoms better. I think there's a huge arena that's wide open for research around vitamins and supplements and, uh, frankly, just nutrition when it comes to these autoimmune diseases. Uh, they're just very hard studies to do and do well. Yeah, it's very intriguing. Um, Patricia from Pennsylvania specifically asked about um, the tightening of muscles. Um, so she's asking, well, why, you know, why is there sort of tightening muscles, and is there anything that she can do about it? Yeah, what she's suffering from is a very common complaint in transverse myelitis. It, it turns out, um, strangely enough, that the majority of the signals that our brain sends to our body at any given moment are actually inhibitory signals. It's the brain telling muscles to stop moving. So that when the spinal cord gets damaged and that stop sign gets taken away, the muscles decide to throw a party for themselves. And so they tighten up and they stiffen because they're not getting a signal from the brain to loosen up. This is a very common problem in patients who've had spinal cord damage, whether it's transverse myelitis or, or any other cause. And often we use a variety of approaches to reduce the muscle tension. Sometimes it's medication, sometimes it's physical therapy, and we'll often use things like yoga uh, or even acupuncture 
to try and reduce the muscle tension. In general, this pathway has to be personalized with your physician uh, to decide what are going to be the best options. But loosening the muscles um, is a very achievable goal. Well, what about sort of exercise and the physio ther physical therapy? Not necessarily just for muscle, but for patients with PMA. So, yeah, no, Jimmy, again, it's another great question in an area of very active research. It's uh, an area of research the Transverse Myelitis Association has supported now for several years. There is a lot of evidence to say that certain physical therapy routines may actually increase the rate of recovery after a spinal cord event. Uh, this is, in some arenas, controversial, the notion of what's called activity-based rehabilitation therapy. Uh, but a lot of our partners around the country who specialize in therapy for transverse myelitis have been using it with quite good results. And what we found is there are motor programs that exist in a person's spinal cord and in a person's brain that go offline or get changed by transverse myelitis, but we can retrain our nervous system to get that motor program working. We just need for people to have the right direction. So we use a lot of different techniques. There's something called functional electrical stimulation. Um, there are a variety of techniques that get even completely paralyzed patients up and walking on treadmills with support that we think go a long way to uh, leading to a recovery of function. Uh, people need to remember that Chris Reeves, who didn't have transverse myelitis, he had a spinal cord injury, but a, a absolutely profound one. He he was completely quadriplegic, had no voluntary control of his muscles, but he went on to a very aggressive therapy routine with multiple hours a day, every single day for his life, and started to see some voluntary functional control of muscles later in his life before he unfortunately passed away. And so we think that uh, therapy is critical and can make a huge difference in outcome. Some patients complain about fatigue. And there's some question about, are there treatments for fatigue in this setting? So the fatigue issue is um, something we see on a regular basis. And one of the things that patients need to be very careful about is getting to the root cause of fatigue. And let me give you some examples. We have some patients who are fatigued because of a side effect of medication they're on. Uh, often we'll give a medicine to relax muscles, which can make a person fatigued. So we have to constantly be vigilant about trying to determine uh, if a medicine is causing a side effect. The second cause of fatigue we often see is inadequate sleep. Uh, we are chronically sleep deprived in, in society, at least American society, and sometimes if patients are getting up to go to the bathroom all night long or being, are suffering from pain, they get a very interrupted sleep which leads to profound fatigue, and so often we'll spend time trying to fix a sleep issue. The third most common cause for fatigue in transverse myelitis patients is related to the fact that they have to work harder to take every step. So patients who have had changes in their balance or sensation or gait have to think about their walking, and that's frankly exhausting. So often we go back to physical therapy to try and identify ways to improve their gait so that each step won't cost them as much energy, such that their energy budget can be stretched longer and longer through the day and they can have less fatigue. 
So there's not a single cause of fatigue and transverse myelitis, and patients need to work very closely with their physicians to try and look for the underlying reason they're having excessive fatigue. Wow, and uh, those are sort of great answers. It seems very complex of what that fatigue could be. How about pain in general? How do, you know, some, some of them would com- sort of complain of pain. Um, what are your thoughts about sort of pain control in the TMA setting? So in transverse myelitis, uh, pain can be present at the beginning or it can develop later. And um, the pain that develops later uh, tends to be classified as something called neuropathic pain. So there are lots of different types of pain in the world. So if you break a bone, it hurts, and that's a mechanical pain from tissue injury. In neuropathic pain, there are changes in the way your brain interprets sensory signals and can sometimes misinterpret things into a painful fashion. So patients will often describe burning or aching pain, sometimes a sensation of a a belt or a corset around their chest or abdomen that's squeezing them, Um, a, a variety of different ways that neuropathic pain can present. What we try to remind our patients is that this pain is treatable, but it is treated differently than the broken bone or the tissue injury. So if you break your bone, I may give you a narcotic um, uh, and try and get rid of that tissue injury. But that's not going to work as well in the setting of neuropathic pain. And often we'll see patients who have gone into advanced or uh, complicated pain regimens Uh, with medicines that are used for tissue pain and are just getting a a suboptimal result. But when we switch to certain medicines that are used for neuropathic pain, things improve dramatically. So this is a very personal conversation with physicians to experiment and find what works. But we also remind our patients that beyond what you do uh, in the context of prescriptions from a medical physician, we also recommend looking for alternative approaches to managing pain. Uh, we see patients get a big response from acupuncture. Uh, we see a big response to working with psychologists and finding ways to uh, separate mind from body and deal with pain in that way. And so we often encourage our patients to look for a very holistic approach to pain management and remind them that getting rid of the pain is more often than not a very achievable goal. Thank you so much. Um, also joining us today from UT Southwestern in Dallas is Dr. Dasana, who is who is the James T. Lubin Fellow at, at the Department of Neurology there. Um, he went to medical school at Loyola Stritch School of Medicine in Maywood, Illinois, in Greater Chicago. Then he did a residency in pediatrics in New Orleans and at the Tulane Oshner Pediatric Program. Then he moved to Dallas and did a residency in pediatric neurology at UT Southwestern. Um, Junction with Children's Medical Center Dallas and Parkland Memorial Hospital, and that's where he sort of developed interest in transverse myelitis and other neuroimmunological disorders, and started to pursue training in those areas. In 2012, he was awarded the first James T. Lubin Fellowship, awarded by the TMA to pursue clinical and research career in transverse myelitis and other related disorders. He's the first pediatric neurology fellow to study the rare spectrum of neuroimmunological disorders and with particular focus on transverse myelitis. So Dr. Desana, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. So we've been talking about in general a little bit 
advice, uh, and its causes and its treatments. Um, one of the questions that uh, uh, a patient caller from England is asking about the genetics of transverse myelitis. Um, she's seen multiple cases in her family uh, with transverse myelitis and asks, um, is, is there a genetic cause to transverse myelitis? Um, well, uh, typically, uh, given the overall rarity of transverse myelitis on the order of probably approximately one in 500,000 patients, uh, we typically have not been regularly seeing uh, uh, more than one case per family. Uh, usually the cases that we're seeing are the first case and more, almost always, and I cannot recall any others where it's not, the only case in the family. Um, and uh, the genetics uh, is probably a little complex. It's multifactorial. Um, we kind of take a little bit of knowledge from multiple sclerosis where there is one major known allele to be associated with increased risk, uh, increased risk for MS. However, for transverse myelitis, given that um, in terms of idiopathic transverse myelitis, that has not necessarily been shown. It's not to say that in the future this won't be an important uh, thing to explore further, but it's not something right now that we unfortunately understand completely. Um, it's possible that there is kind of um, uh, that that uh, increase the stability uh, to it. Uh, Dr. Greenberg talked a little bit about, about, about vitamin D. There might be a role in, uh, at a genetic level, vitamin D regulation because it has so much um, it has so much interaction and effect on the immune system. Uh, but unfortunately, there's not a known one genetic link uh, as there are in some other disorders. Uh, where it's sort of a one-to-one -one where what they call Mendelian genetics. Um, uh, and, uh, but, but this is probably something that will be uh, a much explored topic in the future. Got it. Thank you. How about the links to, of transverse myelitis to other diseases? Um, we have a caller from uh, Virginia asking about the link between she's had sort of Guillain-Barre as well as recurrent transverse myelitis. Is this common for transverse myelitis to be linked to Guillain-Barre? Well, um, it's a very interesting question, just uh, mainly because uh, oftentimes we will find that what is the initial diagnosis for transverse myelitis is Guillain-Barre syndrome. Uh, both of them can present uh, extremely similarly and can be um, virtually indistinguishable on clinical exam uh, when patients first present to the hospital. Um, it's, not, um, on, uh, it's not impossible. I would think that uh, an individual would contract the two of them separately, but oftentimes what we usually see is that what was initially thought to be Guillain-Barre syndrome, which is a disorder, an autoimmune disorder that affects predominantly, excuse me, uh, affects exclusively the peripheral nerves, um, is in fact uh, transverse myelitis where um, we think of it exclusively as a spinal cord um, uh, 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 lesion. Um, and I think that's probably most often what most transverse myelitis patients have encountered, that they have, were thought to have Guillain-Barre syndrome and then 
upon further testing that they actually may have had transverse myelitis. Uh, it's difficult to say, of course, every individual is different. Um, and uh, one of the things, one of our approaches that we also take with transverse myelitis is uh, when a patient first presents with it, we also think of it as is this transverse myelitis by itself, which is a one-time event, what we call idiopathic transverse myelitis, a one-time event that does not recur, or is this transverse myelitis as a symptom of another syndrome? Uh, transverse, rarely uh, multiple sclerosis can, or I should say infrequently, multiple sclerosis can present with a transverse myelitis where the inflammation first starts in the spinal cord. There are other disorders such as NMO or neuromyelitis optica that can also present with a, uh, a transverse myelitis often that, uh, that usually affects uh, a long part of the spinal cord and also uh, other auto rheumatologic and autoimmune diseases that can be associated with transverse myelitis are lupus, uh, neurosarcoidosis, and a couple others. Uh, and so the, those are the, usually, usually, uh, the usual things we think about when we first see a patient with transverse myelitis. And as Dr. Greenberg mentioned, that in the acute setting, the treatment is the same for all of them. Steroids is the, is the first thing that we usually go to, and then we usually escalate to other immunotherapies. Um, but those are the most common things we see linked with transverse myelitis. Thank you. That's very, very helpful. Father Greenberg, um, one of our callers have suggested that she, you know, took a family to a, a transverse myelitis camp and saw that there were a lot of children with sort of carry one malformations. Um, is there a link there somewhere, or is this just sort of incidental? Yeah, this has uh, been a topic of conversation since that camp. Um, there is no uh, study, no published data, and no unpublished data that I am aware of showing a link between Chiari malformations and transverse myelitis. Um, based on discussions with patients and patient families, it's something worthy of investigation uh, for certain. The sense we've gotten, at least initially, is that there is probably not a link but uh, it is way too early to say. One of the things I learned uh, early on from my mentors at Hopkins was the, the best way to get smarter about diseases is to listen to our patients and families. They'll tell us everything we need to know. And as issues like this come up, they uh, are worthy of investigation. And It's something we've talked about with the Transverse Myelitis Association to try and devise a way to get good data on. So at this point, I would say the jury is out, but uh, tune back in, uh, hopefully, uh, sometime over the next year where maybe we can get some preliminary data. Great. Thank you. So, Dr. how about um, transverse myelitis attacking just anterior horn cells? One of, one of the uh, our participants sort of suggested, is it, is it common for transverse myelitis to just attack the anterior horn cells? And maybe also to the listeners, explain what anterior horn cells are. So uh, the anterior horn cells of the spinal cord are the part of the spinal cord that uh, specifically involve the, the motor system or the nerves that uh, where the neuron itself or the, uh, is uh, located that talks to the um, talks to the muscles specifically. So there's the, the spinal cord, like the rest of the nervous system, is very ordered, 
and uh, structured in a certain way so that this, the, the nerve fibers that run just for sensation uh, run in the same place for, uh, uh, are structured along the spinal cord in the same place for individuals. And the same is said for, and the same can be said for the nerves uh, related to, um, uh, uh, the nerves that transmit information to just exclusive, exclusively the muscles. And so when the interior horn cells are involved, you're talking about damage to the neuron itself and not just the uh, myelinated axons uh, for, uh, for the uh, nerves. Uh, it can, it's something that we see uh, in transverse myelitis with fair regularity. Um, transverse myelitis is kind of a funny name just because there are multiple patients that will present with what is called transverse myelitis. However, there's various types, uh, various different ways in which the cord uh, can be affected. It can be affected in the front exclusively or the, or, uh, or the interiorly where the interior horn cells are. It can be affected exclusively in the back of the cord where a lot of predominant uh, the sensory nerves are. And then it could also be involved, involved in both, uh, affecting both uh, sensation uh, and uh, the motor fibers. Um, the, uh, uh, the way in which the, when the interior horn cells are usually involved, you know, often patients that uh, present like this will have um, a very obvious, uh, more persistent flaccid paralysis where their, their tone will be persistently low. And in general, uh, we don't treat these uh, patients any differently um, it's, uh, it tends to be um, just in our observations, uh, patients that have involvement of that region of the spinal cord sometimes tend to not respond as well to our immunotherapies. However, every patient is different. Got it. So, Dr. Greenberg, um, it seems like there's still a lot of options for therapies uh, and, and a lot of good research going on. Is there going to be a cure anytime soon? And what are the possibilities? You know, some of the listeners are suggesting like stem cell kind of stuff. Or is, is there? What, what do you think? What do you see on the horizon that may be sort of exciting? Well, so I'm always uh, cautious with the word cure because I've I found all of my patients have a different definition of the word cure. So I'll, I'm going to uh, avoid using that term, but I'll talk in concrete language. Um, the first uh, question I get when I ask people about uh, cures and what they mean with it or the first statement I get is around restoration of function. So if somebody has had transverse myelitis and is left with a sensory deficit or motor weakness, is there any drug or surgery or stem cell that's around the corner that could help repair the damage that's been done? And the answer is yes. There are several avenues in development around restoration of function. Um, in general, we look at three different avenues to restore function after transverse myelitis. The first, and often the most underrated, is the physical therapy. Uh, we know that we can retrain a nervous system to walk and walk well and work well. So certain deficits in transverse myelitis can be quote-unquote cured with the right physical therapy. Um, the, what most people are looking for, though, is a drug or an intervention, and I'm happy to report that there are two drugs in clinical trials right now who, which are both designed to induce a body's own stem cells or nervous system to repair damage that's been done. 
And these drugs are being tested first in the setting of multiple sclerosis, but we expect for them to make their way to transverse myelitis. And these uh, drugs hold a lot of promise for our patients uh, in some respects, more promise for our patients than for multiple sclerosis patients because in idiopathic transverse myelitis, there's usually just a single area of the nervous system we have to repair versus in multiple sclerosis, there tend to be multiple areas that need repair. And so I think we're going to see these drugs over the next few years make it into phase three trials and move hopefully to the FDA if they're safe and look effective. And we may uh, be able before at least this decade's done, be able to offer patients a drug that can help repair, therap- uh, repair their spinal cord. Stem cell therapies are one of the most anticipated uh, therapies in uh, modern medicine. We have yet to have a stem cell trial in uh, transverse myelitis, but I think at some point we will. There are ongoing stem cell trials right now for a neurologic disease called amyotrophic lateral sclerosis, otherwise known as Lou Gehrig's disease, where we have to regrow motor neurons, and those trials are going actually quite well. We're seeing uh, very promising data. I think repairing a spinal cord with stem cells is going to be, frankly, harder than repairing Lou Gehrig's disease, but there are multiple uh, researchers, labs, and biotech companies who have transverse myelitis in their sites for stem cell therapy. Frankly speaking, I think we're going to see the drugs come out uh, before the stem cells, which is great. I think we will have options to repair damage that's been done. In the meantime, uh, we have two priorities while waiting for that day. The first is to limit the amount of damage that's done in the acute setting, and that's uh, one of the missions of the Transverse Myelitis Association is to make sure that uh, practitioners are educated in what to do and when to limit that damage. And the second job is for our patients, and that is to make sure they are doing their physical therapy daily, not just to restore function, but to maintain function, make sure they don't get contractures, make sure they don't get joint issues or bone issues, make sure their muscles stay limber, because when the day comes that we can repair a spinal cord, patients who have maintained their overall health will be the best candidates to receive it. Yes, that's really cool. And, and also you sort of mentioned the part about sort of education as well. Um, so Dr. Tosana, you sort of, you've been the first fellow that's been funded um, by the TMA um, to sort of specifically study transverse myelitis and other diseases. What are your thoughts about, you know, the, um, physicians' awareness of these sort of neuro, uh, neuroimmunologic diseases and, and what kind of efforts of education have you sort of seen and sort of I guess you're on the front lines as, as you're you know getting this fellowship and learning so can you tell us a little bit about these education efforts and, and yourself as part of them too sure um, uh, and yeah, I consider myself extremely fortunate to, to the transverse Myelitis Association for giving me this opportunity and uh, we've been within our own institution very active in um, um, discussing um, the presentation of uh, transverse myelitis specifically, and also other related disorders, but often transverse myelitis, and its various presentations um, with uh, not only uh, our neurologists that work uh, side by side with us, but also uh, the general pediatricians, the uh, internists, the uh, emergency room physicians, and um, the Transverse Myelitis Association is in, has been working on, uh, as of late, efforts to create a network over time 
um, to um, educate primary care doctors and emergency room physicians about uh, presentations that could mean transverse myelitis and or things that uh, say to us, hey, I think the spinal cord is involved here and we need to look at it. Um, that's uh, something, it's something that's still in the early stages, but uh, from my understanding, we've been making uh, very good progress with it. Um, and um, uh, we, I hope to, in the future, um, uh, continue to have opportunities to uh, um, discuss transverse myelitis. Uh, it's, like I said, it's various presentations. Uh, because it's, it's such a heterogeneous uh, uh, disorder in the sense that there are patients that present with motor symptoms, sensory symptoms, bowel bladder symptoms as the initial, uh, initial sign, and then they go on to develop other issues. And that can be very difficult for not only neurologists, uh, but uh, not only primary care doctors, but even neurologists as well. And um, so it's something that we have to keep on um, uh, uh, touching base on just because, that, as uh, Dr. Greenberg has mentioned, that it, uh, in the acute stages is the time where we need to act the, 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 the most quickly and because we do have therapies that can help accelerate recovery uh, and help the patient do better in the long term if we can help them do better in the short term. And so uh, we're still uh, maybe in the maybe five years from now, I, I, I think uh, our, our our understanding of it across the medical world in its entirety will be better because it's something that we are actively working on right now. That's great. That's great. That's very hopeful. Dr. Greenberg, so um, it seems like there's a lot of hope and promise. If patients want to sort of help out in these efforts, how can they do that? Well, we are always partnering with our patients and families because, as I said, we, we learn the most by working with them. There are a variety of ways for patients and families to get involved. Uh, the first thing we encourage is uh, signing up to be a member of the Transverse Myelitis Association. And it's for two reasons. One is it is a great avenue for them to receive uh, information and become involved in the community. And frankly, it is our major mechanism of communication with the patients and families we serve. Um, it allows for us to get the word out quickly if there are new trials or studies going on to help with recruitment. And it allows patients and families to keep in touch with us relative to new discoveries or avenues. So, so becoming a part uh, or at least signing up to um, be on the uh, mailing list and, and uh, website of the Transverse Myelitis Association is, is a huge help. And there they're going to be asked questions. They're going to be asked to share their data and their experience with the Transverse Myelitis Association in an open access format for us to learn about uh, people's condition and, and their experience with this disease. And it's incredibly useful for us to see that data and that database grow over time because we get smarter and uh, we learn what questions we should be asking. And then finally, I recommend that patients go to a website called clinicaltrials.gov. This is an NIH-sponsored website uh, that is a clearinghouse for all clinical research studies going on in the United States. And so as studies roll out, uh, focusing on transverse myelitis, and we have one here at the University of Texas Southwestern and at Children's where we're doing a longitudinal uh, study of this disease, these studies get listed at clinicaltrials.gov, and you can search by the term transverse myelitis. 
And it's a great way for patients and families to know what are the opportunities uh, in their own backyard uh, or at a distance for them to help in the research efforts. Um, all of these things, uh, getting involved in the Transverse Myelitis Association, sharing data, keeping up with trials, are great ways for patients and families to partner up with us and try and advance research at a faster pace than what has happened in the past. That's great. How any final thoughts, Dr. Desana? What would your sort of, if you, if you can tell your patients sort of one thing as they're sort of waiting for these breakthrough therapies to come and uh, they're sort of coping with their disease, any sort of last words of wisdom that you would want to impart upon them? Well, I've, uh, I've, you know, uh, I've met a lot of patients that have transverse myelitis, and um, uh, to me, the families that support them and the patients themselves are um, some of the most inspiring and strongest individuals in the world that I've, I've met, period. Um, I would uh, encourage uh, individuals with transverse myelitis to, um, you know, be strong, uh, continue to do your stretching and do your therapies and work hard. Um, we are actively trying to um, uh, move the ball forward so that um, uh, more individuals with transverse myelitis are making more and more gains every day, not only in the global sense with the community as a whole and the medical knowledge, but also on an individual by individual basis and seeing individuals that are walking with the walker to see if we can get them to a cane and people, individuals that are walking with a cane or crutches, seeing if we can get them walking unassisted, uh, in addition to uh, helping individuals with bladder and bowel symptoms, uh, manage them so that they can live the, their life uh, in the fullest way possible and carry on with their life. Uh, and um, I would also like to say um, is, is a thank you to uh, not only all the transverse myelitis patients for um, uh, let me, allowing me to work with them, but also with them, the Transverse Myelitis Association. And, and I, would, I would echo Dr. Greenberg's sentiment that um, uh, working with touching base, uh, being in connection with the Transverse Myelitis Association, um, I think is, pro is the best way for individuals to um, keep in touch and not only that, but find other individuals that have been um, both afflicted and other families that have been afflicted with this so that it's, it's really important sometimes um, as physicians we can say that we're doing the best we can and et cetera, but sometimes when you talk to a family that's been through similar things, that's, that's, that in a lot of ways is, is just so important for a lot of families I found in touching base with them. And so I would encourage individuals to do that. And um, we're, we're trying to get things moving as fast as we can in multiple areas. And again, I, I thank everyone. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Greenberg and Dr. Asana and all the work that's happening at the TMA. It seems like there's so much sort of exciting things that's going on, so much hope for the patients. Um, and for us here at Rare Genomics, that's what we would like to hear. And we hope that all 7,000 rare diseases could make as much progress um, as transverse myelitis. It is an inspiring inspiration to all of us. I think for all of us who work with patients and families with rare diseases, it's the dedication that you have, and um, we're really sort of privileged to be able to walk alongside you to hopefully sort of on, on this journey. Well, thank you so much again for the experts, for Chitra, the TMA, for 
um, everybody, the experts to participate. Hopefully, all the, all the listeners have been able to gain some useful information. And as Dr. Greenberg has mentioned, if you want more information, um, definitely visit the website for the transverse myelitis. That's M Y E L I T I S dot org, myelitis.org. Thank you so much. This is another broadcast brought to you by Rare Genomics Institute. Tune in next time as we pursue other diseases and help you understand a little bit more about different diseases. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you.